Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. We gather every Sunday at 9.30 and 11 o'clock and would love for you to join us. If we can do anything for you at all, please email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text for today comes from Isaiah chapter 30. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. But this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you will all flee away, till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you, therefore he will rise up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait on him. Lord, we're so thankful for this community. We pray that we just have ears to hear the message this morning, a heart that understands and delights in your word. We love you. Give you all the glory. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. My man, thank you. You did, you did great. Um, some of you may not know, we started Cornerstone last year in January, so we're, we're a pretty young church, just like 16 months old. But for me, it had been a dream for a long time. Start, I have journals back to 2013 and 2014, just praying through a desire to church plant. And in 2015, I started taking, like making movement that direction. And it was a long time in seeing things fulfilled. But uh, I had an encourager early on in the process Uh, someone who was my district superintendent in the Methodist Church. Dan Pyle and his wife Marilyn are here this morning. And uh, Dan was just a big encourager to me and kind of uh, like fanning the flame of what God's doing in me. So I haven't gotten to say hi to you yet personally, but Dan and Marilyn, I'm grateful for you. Thank you for encouraging me. Blesses my heart. Makes me want to cry. Thank you. Yeah, we can clap for the Piles. Lots of things make me want to cry, <laughs> especially in church. Well, in the, in the last two months, I have read, uh, I've been reading more novels and biographies and things like that, and in the last two months, I've read both Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and George Orwell's 1984, uh, both books that have been banned in various countries at different points in history, uh, two fairly uh, controversial books. And both books describe this kind of dystopian future, but they have very different uh, imaginations for what that would look like. The Brave New World takes place uh, 500 years from now in 2400 AF. They count time after Ford, after Henry Ford and the introduction of the assembly line and just the mechanization of, of the world. They count time AF. And it's in, in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, it's a pleasure-obsessed society where the goal of the state is to force happiness 
on all of its citizens. And the way that they force this happiness is through this drug that's distributed really widely called Soma that everybody takes. Uh, and also through just like this utter frivolity, forced frivolity and forced like sexualization uh, of the world. People have been pre-selected and conditioned into these classes, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, uh, and they know where they fit in society according to where they were uh, pre-conditioned from birth. They're induced into thoughtlessness by just overwhelming pleasure all the time and frivolity. For Orwell, it was a very different uh, vision of the world. It was not a world of pleasure, but a world that was characterized by pain. Uh, in Orwell's uh, 1984, it's, it, it takes place in the, the, the country of Oceania, which uh, is always under the watchful eye of Big Brother. And it's a, it's a state that is under totalitarian control. There are these little screens called telescreens everywhere you go. There's this secret society called the Thought Police that is always watching its citizens and trying to sniff out rebellion. And the way that they keep citizens on their toes is they have this, they drum up these, this perpetual state of war so that they're always focused on the outside, on the enemy that's trying to attack them, and then putting their trust in the government that is appearing to protect them. In both of the books, Brave New World in 1984, the state dictates the terms of one's existence. There's a diminished sense of individuality. That sense of individuality has been utterly removed. They belong to the state. In Brave New World, the state uses pleasure to dull the masses into submission. In 1984, they use war to get them to do what they want them to do. But in both books and in both worlds, uh, uh, imagined by Huxley and Orwell, there's one item that is most taboo. One thing that if it got into the hands of the people, it would completely upend the whole organization. One thing that is like the most dangerous thing to their existence, the existence of the state. Can anybody guess what it is who hasn't read the books? What's that? Yeah, books. And the most dangerous of all books is the Bible in both worlds. Because a, a book brings you a perspective from the outside. A book gives you a sense of like, pauses your moments in time and takes you elsewhere. A book is the ultimate word from another world. And the Bible is chief among these, the, the ultimate word from another world, a voice from a different era. And so the Bible and books, literature in general, has, is kept from the masses so that they keep buying the, the message that the state is producing. And as we continue through the year of the Bible, and if you've not been around, all year long we're reading through the Bible together as a church. And so we started on January 1st in Genesis 1, and we have daily readings, and the sermons weekly have come from the reading. And now we've transitioned into a, a pretty formidable part of the Scriptures that are providing a bit of a challenge I'm hearing from, from you and in my own experience. We're going to the prophets. So we had been in First and Second Kings, and you may have been like, wait, why do we skip First and Second Chronicles? We're going to come back to that later, because we've been reading in First and Second Kings, kind of the unwinding of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, and now we come to Isaiah, which is the world of, of the prophets. And maybe you've tried to read the prophets in the past, and it was just too much, and you thought, like, nobody can make sense of any of this, or, or you're like, you read Left Behind at one point, and you're trying to figure out how Left Behind makes sense. Don't worry about it. You can throw that away as far as I'm concerned. Stick with Isaiah. 
there's, there's a, it's, a, it's difficult reading to be certain. But one of the things that may make it especially difficult is an incomplete understanding of what it is we're reading and engaging with the prophets, engaging with a prophet. What is it that a prophet does? A prophet is not merely one who predicts the future or just a contrarian to the powerful, which is mostly how that term is used today. Uh, But a a prophet is a person who's been deeply immersed in the story of God, who's been personally inspired by the Spirit of God, who's fully dedicated to helping the people of God obey the covenant of God so that the earth will be filled with the glory of God. The prophet has the ultimate Scripture-soaked imagination and yearns for these rebellious people to be reconciled to God. So the prophet is always seeing things from God's perspective and trying to bring the people in line. Many people think the role of the prophet is primarily to foretell the future, like a fortune cookie or like they have a crystal ball and they're trying to predict what's going to happen way outside the lifetime of those who are listening. But most of the time, the job of the prophet is not to foretell, but to foretell. Uh, And we see uh, through the lens of Christ certainly how uh, there was a message, a clear message that was was to be delivered to the people at their place and time. And yes, through the lens of Christ, we see how there's multi-layered meaning. But primarily, the prophet was speaking a message of clarity from God about the social and political and religious landscape of the world in which they lived. The prophet is offering a voice of clarity to a confused culture. And so as we look at the book of Isaiah, there's a clue for us in the very first uh, verse of the entire book that helps us to orient the whole thing in the context uh, that's helpful. This is Isaiah 1.1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And if you kept current on your reading in 2 Kings, or maybe you'll get there in a couple of weeks, these names should look familiar. These were names in the, the southern kingdom of Judah. They were, they were kings over Judah. And, and the book tells us these were prophecies given, visions given to Isaiah during the reign of those kings. And so as we read these names and we read other historical names and events and we see places in the book of Isaiah, it should call to mind places we've read this before, namely 2 Kings. And so 2 Kings was super confusing with all the different names of the kings in Israel and in Judah, but just know that the book of Isaiah is primarily situated at the place and time that we just read in the book of 2 Kings. And it anchors the the primary audience, the primary focus point of the book of Isaiah during the reigns of those kings. So Kyle read for us Isaiah chapter 30, a part of Isaiah chapter 30. And in Isaiah chapter 30, the southern kingdom of Judah is in trouble. The violent nation of Assyria has already come in and wiped out the northern ten tribes of Israel and exiled them to another land. And now Assyria has set their sights on the southern kingdom of Judah and they're shaking in their boots. And 2 Kings 18 tells us that fearing what the Assyrians would do to them, uh, the, the people of Judah proactively go down to Egypt and strike up this treaty with the Egyptians so that when the Assyrians come in, the Egyptians will come up to help. The people of Judah are, are, are very nervous, uh, this is what, but this is what God has to say to them, Isaiah 30, "'Woe to the obstinate children, those disobedient kids of mine.'" who carry out plans that aren't mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit. It's like, who told you to do this? It wasn't me. 
You're heaping sin upon sin, going down to Egypt without consulting me, looking for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge, but Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's, Egypt's shade will bring you to disgrace. And the prophet is offering the people of Judah a word of critique that the way that you're thinking about your crisis is all wrong. The people of Judah might object. They're like, look, we don't want to get wiped out. I mean, we're like God's people. This is the holy land. We've got the temple. We have a lot to lose. Don't, don't push back on us for this. Like, uh, if we can pay off Egypt to protect us, isn't that the right thing to do, a reasonable thing to do? They let pragmatics of needing, feeling like they needed to protect themselves and not values drive their behavior. It's the ultimate case of like the ends justifying the means. They let pragmatics, the concern, how are we going to get delivered? Because like, you know, we have to do this on our own. They let pragmatics and not values drive their decision. As we think about our lives and we think about the choices that we have to make, pragmatics must never define or dictate our theology or override our invitation to obedience. Pragmatics should never alone drive our behavior. Letting uh, pragmatics and just the practicality of obeying God's law uh, should never drive our behavior. And in fact, when it does, it's a form of practical atheism. God, I don't believe that you knew what you were talking about when you told your people to behave in this way. I couldn't possibly forgive that person, even though you said, if you don't forgive others their sins, I'm not going to forgive you yours. I'm not, how could I possibly trust you with my finances? How could I possibly live in a way of generosity when a world where like, there, there are more and more demands and the income keeps, keeps going down? How could I possibly trust you with my sexuality? Do you know how difficult it is to make wise choices in the arena of our sexuality? And yet God says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? When we let pragmatics drive our obedience, we practice a form of practical atheism. It's a demonstration of unbelief. Because practical and pragmatic objections don't take into account the reality and the mercy of God who can do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine. God who told us to do these things will equip us by His Spirit to live in this way, letting pragmatics drive it as a form of practical atheism. But the prophet, hearing Israel's objections, look, why would we not go down to Egypt for protection? The prophet is immersed in the story of God. The prophet is inspired by the Spirit of God and is not bound by pragmatics. That's the gift of the prophet, this word from another world, this perspective of clarity. It's like, yeah, but God. Do you think God is unable to help us or to rescue us? The prophet remembers Israel's own story and how Egypt is a place of slavery, and God said, you don't need to go back there again. The prophet remembers the covenant and all of God's promises. This was uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses said before he died, you may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? Don't be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm uh, with which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. The prophet remembers all that God has previously said. So what should you do? Return to the Lord. He's the one who fights your battles. He's the one who charges ahead victorious. You don't even have to lift a finger. And so the prophet says at the end of Isaiah 30, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says to you. 
In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. It's like Jesus riding into Jerusalem, weeping over the city, saying, if you only knew the way that made for peace, you would have none of it. He said, no, we'll flee. Okay, so you'll flee. You said, we'll ride off on horses. All right, well, your pursuers are going to be swift too. But listen, the prophet says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. He's a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait on him. And the prophet, the prophet has offered the people a word of critique. You're letting pragmatics drive your decision. You're abandoning the covenant. But now he's offering this word of hope. And if you return to God, if you trust in him, he will prove himself faithful to you. He'll prove himself enough. Will you trust him? Will you completely surrender yourself to him? Will you take him at his word? And this, these two messages, this is what biblical prophets do. They offer a word of critique, a word of clarity, a perspective from a different vantage point, from from God's vantage point. They question and they challenge the strength of the prevailing dominant cultural wisdom by holding it up to the standards of God and the wisdom of God and the covenant of God who designed the world and knows how everything is supposed to work. He set the whole thing into motion. They offer this word of critique and then they offer this word of hope calling us to return to the God who rises to show us compassion, who longs to show us mercy. They offer a word of critique to the prevailing knowledge and wisdom of the day, and then they offer this word of hope that God's not just here to beat you up and to show you all the ways in which you've abandoned His covenant. He's here to lead you to life. He longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. You know what it's like when you get like in a funk in a relationship? Maybe it's with a person. Maybe it's with your work and like like your brain just clicks over to lizard brain and you're in toxicity mode and you can't see clearly. Or maybe you've been in a toxic situation for so long that someone else comes in and points out and you go, hey, you know that's not normal, right? This is exactly what the prophets do. The prophets give us clarity about, hey, everyone else is thinking in this way, but they're just wrong. (laughs) And there's another way to behave. Have you ever considered the fact that everybody you know has only lived a single lifetime? Like all of the wisdom that all of us spout off to one another, all of us have only the the benefit of our lifetimes to shine at light on how we're supposed to live and make sense of this complicated world. She demonstrates we have limited perspective. We're teensy little creatures with these, you know, they're, they're great, they're gifted, but these small little brains... I was in a couple airports this week, and Todd and I were walking through a terminal and just commenting on how when we travel, we recognize how big the world is. Like, the, we were at this Christian conference, and there were some big names there. Nobody in the airport had any idea who these people were. We are, we are teensy little finite creatures in such a big and a complicated world. The world is a big place. I'm just a grain of sand in it, you know, kind of a drop in the bucket. What on, earth, what on earth would make me believe that I have all of the wisdom that I need within myself or within all of us on our own to make sense of such a complicated world? 
And it seems to me that the path of wisdom begins when we divest our confidence from our own wisdom apart from divine revelation. The path of wisdom begins when we divest confidence in our own insight. We begin to discern the endless ways in which our wisdom is just a product of the echo chambers of voices reverberating throughout the world that don't have at their origin the voice of God, that are not guided by the love of God and the virtue of God, that do not have in their end the glory of God. We begin to recognize that our, our values and our world is being driven by just the little things echoing in here and not the perspective from on high. We begin the path of wisdom when we divest that confidence. We need wisdom. We need a voice outside of ourselves. We need that word from another world, which is precisely what God has so longed to give us from the beginning. It started through, through Moses and through the prophets, but that word from another world came in its completion at the fullness of at the timing of God and the advent of Jesus Christ. John says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him, and yet to all who would receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, adopted into the Father's family. The wisdom of God sounds like utter foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, this word from another world, this perspective from the outside, which at times is popular, at times is deeply unpopular, at times it's safe to be in the majority believing it like this, and sometimes believing in this word costs us our life. This is the word that brings us life. This word has come to us ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. We are not here as a church merely to be moral or to be virtuous, though I hope that we're all growing in virtue and as people of morality. We're not here just to sing and to have an emotional experience sitting in rows and feeling part of a larger network, a body. We're here to hear and believe that word from another world that has ultimately come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We're here to, to lay our agenda, lay our own wisdom at the feet of Jesus and asking him to, to speak to us that word of life that brings life. We're, at, we're, we're setting out together to be a group of people who are trying to follow in the way of Jesus together, not as individual religious consumers, but learning to have an imagination of usness, seeing ourselves as his body that he gave his life to win, to become together as community shaped by the gospel. And it's in getting our brains right and our hearts right and our wisdom right that we think that there's a chance to join God in the renewal of all things. And so whether it's talking through Isaiah or Lamentations or Mark or Revelation or the law in Leviticus and all things that we do when we gather as a body, we're seeking that word from another world, that word that became flesh and dwelled among us and still dwells among us. Jesus, who is still calling men and women to be his apprentices, his students, and as we gather today, we're encouraging each other, keep moving that direction. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, thank you that when you could have chosen silence, you chose to speak. And when you could have chosen distance, you chose proximity. And while you could have chosen judgment alone, you chose judgment and mercy, grace and truth. And Jesus, the world is so complicated for us. You know what we're made of? We come from dust and to dust will return. And sometimes it feels like it's just way too much. I pray as we gather today, as we gather every week, as we open up your word, that you would speak that word of life to our hearts. Remember, Jesus, after your resurrection, how you were walking along the path to, down to Emmaus, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, you began to, ex- to explain to those disciples how you were, you were meant to suffer, but you would be raised from the dead. And as you explained that word from another world to them, their hearts burned within them. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd cause our hearts to burn within us, that in the cacophony of voices, you'd speak that voice of clarity, that you'd give us a sense of identity and purpose and value and meaning as we invest ourselves fully into your wisdom and divest ourselves completely of our own. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that this is not on our shoulders, but what you gave at at, at the cross, you continue to offer yourself. You continue to intercede for us at the right hand of your Father. And here, by your Spirit, you are with us today. Now, pray as we come around the table, we come with, with open hands, and that you'd nourish us on the person of Jesus Christ. Make that word, which is alive and active, alive and active in us, to, that together we could be uh, the community shaped by the gospel to join you in the renewal of all things. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.